Hi, I'm Daniel Gazzoni, Senior Technology Engineer here at BNR, and to me, automation is innovation. Hey, and welcome to today's episode of This Is Automation. Uh, today I'm here with a very special guest, Daniel Gazzoni. How are you doing, Daniel? Very good, very good. Thank you very much for having me. No problem. Um, so can you just tell us quickly a little bit about yourself and some of your history with BNR? Absolutely. I've been with uh, BNR now for, for quite a little while. Um, I've been here for more, a little more than 11 years. My background, I'm an electrical engineer by, by training. And um, I've been in the role of uh, a technology engineer now for a few years. The main portion of our role here is to help foster new and selected technologies into our, our marketplace. And it's, it's a role that I've uh, enjoyed quite a bit. Uh, I've read something that really resonated with, uh, to me the other day. It's really something that has exposed me to, to, to working at the intersection of design, technology, and development. And that's something that I really enjoy. So I would consider you the resident map view expert. What's your take on that? Well, I, yeah. <laughs> I'm flattered, but uh, yeah. No, so uh, as part of my role too, I've I've been uh, able to to participate in the development of some of the map view components. Mm -hmm. Cool. So if uh, that wasn't enough of a spoiler, we are going to be talking about map view today, but also just uh, web technology in general and how that can be used in the industrial environment to kind of bring uh, modern design uh, to your machines. So there's 8.9 billion mobile devices. I looked this up uh, before the interview uh, that have active connections in the world. So 8.9 billion active mobile devices. And for those of you that don't know, that's more devices than there are people in the world. Uh, so what does that mean? It basically means that virtually everybody on the planet, certainly everybody in the industrialized part of the world, has a mobile device and is basically getting exposed to very carefully crafted UI and UX, right? So basically, uh, we're, we're talking like smartphones, that every detail of those interfaces is, is very carefully done. So font size, font placement, the colors, the icons, navigation schemes, animations, everything's very well defined um, and, and designed intentionally um, with, with lots of research backing that up. So this is great because it makes it really easy to use those devices. Um, so, for example, my 15-month-old can pick up my iPhone, and he pretty much understands the navigation scheme. He knows to push the home button to, to change back to the main screen, and he can swipe and everything. So all of that's very intuitive such that literally a, a toddler can, can understand it. Um, so, And that's on the consumer electronics side, of course. But trans transitioning that into the industrial world, it's pretty much the exact opposite, right? So UI and UX is basically unplanned. If if it's even uh, involved, it's usually an afterthought after the core machine functionality is complete. It isn't something that's brought up in, in the first meetings. Uh, when we're talking about designing machines, you're looking at like probably gray background, gray buttons, uh, industrial touchscreens that basically have really complex and unintuitive navigation schemes. I've seen some really, really bad ones, really small fonts, really big fonts. Uh, and if they're not gray, for some reason, they're just like in, like just really harsh, bright colors. I don't know why <laughs> why that is. Um, but we've said the words UI and UX a couple times. Can you just quickly run over the, what that is, Daniel? 
Absolutely, and I think you bring it a good point. Uh, uh, the, the fact that it's an afterthought at best. Mm-hmm. No, but uh, UI and UX, you know, people talk about uh, these terms quite a bit now. I mean, sometimes, well, I'd say most often they're used, used interchangeably. Mm-hmm. But there is, you know, there is a difference. So UI really is the, the the means by which someone is controlling or interacting a piece of software or hardware. Um, UX, although that, that more broadly, you know, UX represents the, the entire user experience. So the UI, of course, is an essential part of the UX, but obviously not the whole story, right? From this perspective, uh, if you look at a, for an industrial automation uh, perspective, uh, of course, you can have a very sleek UI, but not deliver the goods when it comes to, to the expectation of the user is as far as production and so on, obviously. But... I think that the question that we that we ask is uh, why does this matter, right? Why do people talk so much these days about UX? And really, the reason is that we've seen some very good examples of of, of companies that have invested heavily in 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 UX, right? In maintaining mm-hmm. a pristine user experience to their users. So they've incorporated that into the, their culture. They've incorporated that into the design process of their products. And so you know. Unsurprisingly, these companies are clear market leaders, mm-hmm. and so we've seen that correlation, you know, between investment mm-hmm. in UX and success in the field. Yeah, and I think a lot of that trend. So, I mean, we all know that the industrial world has gotten along pretty much just fine <laughs> with the way things are for the past however long you know uh, HMIs have been around. And uh, the, the problem that I think, you know, especially these innovative companies that, that are starting to make these changes and focus heavily on UI and UX is the new generation of industrial workers has been raised on these really powerful UI and UX designs. And the traditional design just just doesn't really cut it anymore, especially with high turnover rates and things like that. I've, I've had customers, uh, for example, tell me that, uh, you know, it takes them uh, two weeks to train someone on the, on a machine because the interface is so complicated. But that worker's gone in a week. So before they even finish training them, they've got someone new coming in. So I think that's a lot of why uh, that, that focus is, is kind of shifting towards UI UX these days. Absolutely. I to- uh, totally agree. I mean, there's, I think there's definitely a, a big challenge that uh, end users or, you know, manufacturers have to contend mm-hmm. with these days with the, with the changing qualifications, with the, with the changing workforce. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a, really a generational change. Um, and, but, you know, there, there, there are things that, that people can immediately gain from this. I mean, like if, you, if we think about a couple of concepts from UX that we, you know, from, from the user experience, from UX that we can bring into the UI world, a couple of things we should bring focus to is one is the concept of, of uh, providing a low barrier to entry. The concept really states you, know, you want to make your product more approachable, easier to use. Uh, so it, it really that allows or helps uh, captivate new users. And the other thing, which is a very interesting concept, is the concept of familiarity. So you can leverage your users' uh, knowledge of existing UI patterns into your own product for you know for for the the benefit of the usability of your product. So what does that mean? You know that means um, iPhone-like design language and controls mm-hmm. uh, following uh, material design conventions, which is the the Google. Um, design language 
this is the design language that you, know, you see embedded in the Android operating systems. I mean, as manufacturers are kind of rushing to, to catch up on HMI designs and UI and UX and implementing these, uh, you know, kind of uh, common design uh, languages like Material Design and, and Apple is using in their products, what I've seen for the most part, the vast majority are turning to web-based technology um, to, to kind of help accelerate their UI and UX and HMI design, um, and, and basically ultimately to help that that new generation of workers to be successful and to, to enable faster training and better flexibility for their machines um, and, their, and their operations. Um, so from a web-based technology perspective, could you just tell me what web-based technology is? What, what does that mean? I think you generally define that, what, what is web technology, by defining the sort of uh, the tools that are involved with web technology. Mm-hmm. So there are really three main technologies, three main points that we can uh, bring up bring up here, and really it's it's no it's HTML, it's CSS, and JavaScript. So I know very little about web technology, just to be completely honest with you. So can you kind of walk us through each of those? So HTML, I know that's hypertext markup language. What what is a markup language even? What is what is that? Right, mean? that's a good question. That is a good question. <laughs> HTML, of course, means hypertext markup language. Uh, a markup language is a language that contains, let's say, formatting elements in addition to the actual content that is being rendered on the screen. Hypertext means that it's uh, machine-readable. So mm-hmm. not all markup language has to be machine-readable. This is the case with, with HTML. So so with HTML, if I'm looking at like a standard web page, what part of the web page is HTML like responsible for? Right, HTML essentially defines the structure that you see on the page. Okay. And then so so we're saying HTML is one part of the solution, and then the next one you mentioned was CSS. Can you talk about CSS? Sure. So C- CSS, is, um, especially when, when HTML went through its latest revision, mm-hmm. what you know, people call H- HTML5, um, it became quite apparent that st- styling or defining, let's say, the visual aspects of those elements that we've created on the screen became quite complex to be integrated within that markup language of HTML. So CSS was born that way. So um, CSS really provides the styling, the visual definitions of those elements on the screen. Okay, gotcha. So if HTML is laying out the basic structure of a page um, and the elements on that page, then CSS is what is defining how those different elements are styled. So the the color and the borders and so on and so forth. Exactly. Okay. Um, And then the last thing that you mentioned as part of web technology um, after HTML and CSS is JavaScript. So same question, what is JavaScript? Right. And so, so JavaScript is a scripting language that allows mm-hmm. you to, to manipulate those elements and to make the yeah. content of your web page dynamic. So responsive to what the user inputs or any other condition okay. that triggers, that needs to trigger a response on the website. And I think a common misconception is that JavaScript and Java are the same thing. Right. Is that true? <laughs> oh, no, it's, it's, it's not true. Those are, those are two quite different things. So JavaScript was created in the early 90s, actually at Netscape. Not sure if you remember that, but yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, so it was actually an interesting fact. It was actually created in reportedly 10 days. 
by someone at Netscape. Now, it was originally called Livescape, but Netscape saw an opportunity. You know, there was another, there was, you know, a, a new programming language that was uh, gaining popularity at the time, Java. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so they piggybacked on that and then changed the okay. name to JavaScript. So I didn't know that. There's a little bit of mystery underneath that. So they, they basically tagged on to the popularity of Java to, to kind of help their essentially, essentially. <laughs> language. Yeah, and, and, and of course, we can go in more details about the differences between the two languages. Sure. It's, yeah. it's a little bit outside the bounds, but, mm -hmm. but uh, one way you can look at it is that <clears throat> Java will be most commonly present in a server-side application, mm -hmm. whereas <clears throat> JavaScript will be prevalent on a client side, on the, on the browser, right? This right. is another piece of the of the technology that we haven't talked about, and mm -hmm. that's what renders the web page, and that's the browser. Gotcha. Okay, so yeah, maybe we should just talk about that real quick. So we're saying HTML5, uh, CSS3, and JavaScript kind of make up the tools of web technology, and, and the way that that all works together is, like you're saying, there's some sort of browser or client that's accessing pages. Is that the right word? That's right. That's so, right. It's giving us a call, call it pages or content, right? Yeah. So could you talk about how that works just, I guess, from a server client and where where what gets rendered and where what gets stored? As we talk about uh, web technology and um, web HMIs, web UIs, you will hear these terms, right? Mm -hmm. You have a, a server, essentially two things, a server and a client. Okay. So the server will serve up the, these contents. It will serve up the HTML, any JavaScript scripts that need to be included, uh, the CSS files to the client. Uh, the client's um, job then is to, to actually render the content, to render or to draw it on the screen. And then the client is also executing any JavaScript, right? That's not going back to the server. It's, it's happening locally. Right, exactly. Yeah. The, 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 the scripting, the programming then is done on, on the client. Okay, cool. So that, that's kind of web technology in a nutshell. A uh, quick five-minute over, overview of it. Um, when we talk about web technology for machines, Specifically, what does web technology enable versus like a typical visualization? If we're thinking like in the BNR world, that would be like a visual components for VC4. Or if, if you're a Rockwell user, that would be something like Factory Talk View. What does web technology give us that you can't get out of those kind of tools? I think it brings a lot to the table, honestly. Um, but if I were to highlight a few points, mm -hmm. well, I can't say enough about really achieving and having platform independence. As we mentioned in our, in our brief overview, one of the key aspects of what, what web technology consists of is the browser. So all you need really to render your, your visualization is the browser. So you're not married or not attached to a piece of hardware, a plugin, or even an operating system. There are other things, of course. I mean, you have inherent capabilities to, 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 to view and display media like PDFs, videos, animations, things that really are not a given in our typical industrial um, field, one of the things I'd like to, to highlight is really the ability to uh, the ability to keep pace with um, with further innovation in, in the UI space. Mm -hmm. um, the ability uh, for you to execute on those on that modern design that we discussed, right? You know, and, and think about the, fa the familiarity concept we discussed. Last but not least, I'd say that it you know you're not closed into any proprietary technology. Yeah, I think that's huge. So like with web technology, because we're using or leveraging rather um, this kind of open 
technology where HTML5 and CSS3 and JavaScript are, are well supported outside of the industrial world, you can take advantage of all of these new features that come out or um, uh, new design elements. Um, anything that's being kind of the de facto standard for UI and UX design is going to be implemented into these open standards and we can easily kind of uh, port that over to the industrial world if we're using those technologies, I think. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Good. So uh, the, the other thing that I think is, is really important with web technology um, in the industrial world is the capability to have multi-client visualizations. Um, so you can talk about what, what is a multi-client uh, system, what, what kind of what does that architecture look like, and then what would you use that for? Right, right. And, and, and thinking about this, uh, I would say, you know, I'll go back to, to, the, to the platform independence. Mm -hmm. um, with, a, with web technologies, you're not required to use any specific uh, hardware or plugin. To, to show off your visualization, your UI. And so what that allows you to do is to really to, to display on, on any device. Mm -hmm. So the ability to have a multi-client implementation uh, allows you to, to have uh, your, your UI, your interface, in not only in a dedicated display on the machine, but also on other devices like, like a tablet or, an, or a phone. So I think it allows you to just think about the function of the UI in a broader sense and, and perhaps in a, in a way that is more useful mm -hmm. to the people that need to use it. Right. And again, this, this goes a long way to improving the overall user experience. So it does sound a little complicated, I must admit, uh, just the, the concept of web technology in general. It may be kind of a big ask for controls engineers and automation engineers to, to now become, you know, web developers, basically, is kind of the, <laughs> the proposal that we're making. Um, you know, there's, there's three new languages to, to kind of learn with HTML and CSS and JavaScript, new design tool, uh, you know, there's plenty of tools out there that, that you can use to, to build web pages, which is likely then going to require some training, maybe licenses. Uh, is there an easier way to, to do all of this that's maybe a little more catered to the industrial world? I think, I think so. I think that, that really those are all the, the points that we wanted to tackle when we created our map view visualization. So map view. This is BNR's web-based visualization uh, tool. So can you just give me a rundown of what, what is MapView uh, and kind of how it works and maybe any fun terms that we need to know to, to have a conversation about MapView? Absolutely, sure. So um, let's talk about the different components in the general architecture for the visualization. Mm -hmm. we, we, talk about, we talked about the client and the server, mm -hmm. right? With MapView, of course, you have a, a visualization server or a, or a MapView server. The MapView server will fetch data from a, a PLC. So the PLC will contain your, the machine data, the source data that will be rendered on the screen. And it accesses that PLC via OPC UA. The MapView server then serves up the, the, the content to the client. So the clients can be anything from a dedicated panel on a machine to a, uh, a tablet uh, running iOS or basically any device that has a, a, a browser mm -hmm. in it. As a developer, create a visualization, you, you, there will be some terminology that you become familiar with, that you hear. I'll start with layout. Layout is basically how a page is structured. So it defines certain areas within, within a page. Now, those areas then are assigned contents, 
another term, right? So contents mm -hmm. are contents are basically are the pieces that actually contain those visual elements of the UI. And finally, those and let's talk about those visual elements. We call them widgets. So these widgets are little bits of the UI uh, BNR has developed and, and included within MapView. Mm -hmm. um, so for example, like buttons, so on and so forth. Yeah, so, yeah. so it ranges in complexity and function. Of course, they, they can be as okay. simple as a as a button or numeric inputs or numeric output fields mm -hmm. to a lot more complicated pieces of the UI. To kind of recap that, we've got uh, pages that contain layouts that contain areas that contain contents which contain widgets is that right that that is correct that is correct okay and then um so how do you kind of uh, piece all of these together we were kind of um trashing on uh, the, the kind of standard web technology where you've got to learn languages if this is still based on web technology how how do you not need to know web technology to actually build this MapView provides um, a really a very rich library of widgets that have been developed over over the years. So the, these widgets have ready-made functions that that the user configures and uh, styles to their requirements. And we've also provided editor support to create those contents. So you, you're not really using your text editor to to write HTML. You're developing within Automation Studio using uh, what you see is what you get editor to drag and drop those those widgets into into those content areas. Mm -hmm. And then the, the other thing I think that's pretty powerful about the MapView solution as far as how, how is it a little different from, you know, maybe building a traditional web-based page, for example, is that we have an XML compiler that sits in between what you're actually programming using the what you see is what you get editor and the HTML. So uh, if there's any changes in the HTML standard, for example, you don't have to change your code that's being handled kind of in that intermediary step with the XML compiler, right? Absolutely. We, we, um, you're using really technologies that's being provided by BNR that um, buffers or mm -hmm. uh, protects you from, from those changes. Right. So there are, in fact, different layers of, of abstraction that you can think of that give you that protection against anything that changes or in the browser or in the mm -hmm. standard um, is the fact that you're using widgets. So widgets that are developed by BNR and in a sense guaranteed and tested. And even within MapView, MapView is built upon a, a framework that allows it to maintain the consistent behavior across changing versions of technology. Yeah, which is really powerful, especially for those OEM machine builders out there that don't want, they, they want to take advantage of web technology, but they don't want to have to consistently, you know, change versions and, you know, make minor tweaks to the code. So if that's being handled in the back end by BNR, that's a, that's a big plus. I think it's a huge plus. The amount of work that would come with, with that is not meaningless. It can be quite a bit of, of a challenge to maintain. So we've kind of hinted at this already, but why would someone uh, want to choose something like a BNR MapView solution versus a custom web-based solution where they have kind of full control and everything? What uh, what are the the advantages that MapView brings to the table in that respect? I think we've we've hit at a couple of points that you know speak to that advantage. So really, what MapView brings to the table really is a complete system. So it's not only the development environment. Right, the drag and drop environment, the, the ready-made widgets, but also everything on the periphery of the HMI that that is needed. 
Mm -hmm. So we mentioned before some of the blocks in the system, you know, include the MapView server. And we mentioned that we fetch data right from the PLC. In mm -hmm. the end, this is what we need. We need to render a process for machine data on the HMI. And so what MapView includes really is, you know, it takes advantage of that OPC UA connection to the PLC to really to achieve access security, a role-based access control, units, and, and so on. So all of that is built into the system. It does not have to be then done from scratch yeah. by the, the developer. Yeah, so really I think the common theme there is that MapView was designed for controls engineers and machine builders. And web technology was not. <laughs> so we're, I think that's a very fair assessment, yes. Yeah, so I mean, having it fully integrated into Automation Studio, having the OPC UA integration, all of the communications and building the widgets and compiling into HTML, all of that gets handled in the back end by, uh, by BNR, by MapView. And then the machine builder or a user is then just left to kind of build on top of that framework that we've built. Uh, that again is really well integrated with um, not just like we're saying with OPC UA and, and kind of the visualization tools, but also with the rest of Automation Studio, where it's uh, very well linked between uh, you know your process variables or your tags um, to, to connect data points and things like that. Um, so yeah, I think it's a really powerful solution. The other thing is with OPC UA, that takes kind of an, another layer out of the responsibility of the machine builder. Um, where security is being handled kind of inherently. Um, it's very easy to just configure instead of having to build a security framework on top of the web technology framework that you're having to build. So it takes a lot of com complexity out of the solution, I think. Absolutely, absolutely. I think it's, it's probably one of the, the greatest strengths of the system. Again, we mentioned that we have this kind of scalable open platform that's based on open standards, and those standards can change, right? Um, so... We've, we've touched on this a little bit, but can you talk about why an engineer would not need to redesign every time the standard changes? So let's say it moves from HTML5 to HTML6 or there's some new feature implemented. What uh, What is living in the back end of Matthew that, that kind of protects the user from seeing those changes? Yeah, I think a couple of things. Really, it's the, the Matthew framework and the, the Matthew widgets. Mm -hmm. So the widgets, for example, these are essentially packaged or encapsulated JavaScript code mm -hmm. that is deployed onto the to, to the HMI to, for example, render and control and provide function of a button, for example, or um, animation or whatever it may be. And so what we provide here with, with, with the Matthew platform are very frequent updates to those components. So we, we are actually working on a quarterly release system. So four times a year, will release a, a fully vetted and tested system that includes updates to all of those components. And so by frequently providing updates, we are able to very quickly address issues with, let's say, compliance or compatibility issues like that. Of course, you know, browsers are frequently updating their code as well, so frequently updating their platforms. And so we have to be able to react to those changes. And that's what provides the buffer for the end user right. and the developer. Another interesting component of the MapView solution, I think, is the capability, kind of the inherent way that it functions, is that some of the visualization is, is offloaded to the client itself. And when I say the visualization, I mean the, the, the processing requirements for the visualization. So um, can you just talk about the client-side processing and kind of what that means? In the traditional HMI, 
control of the navigation of any any dynamic element on the screen mm -hmm. was done at the server level. And mm -hmm. typically the server is your POC, your industrial right. controller. So the industrial controller really has the burden to not only control any dynamic elements, to change, um, to make an element visible or invisible, mm -hmm. to even to change pages and to, right. to load different different content. All of it executes on that server side on that controller. Uh, so really, the, there is a lot more processing payload that is required of your controller. With web technology, all of that is essentially shifted towards the client. Sure. So now the client hardware is what's responsible for, for rendering and for um, animating or creating any dynamic uh, reactions to the HMI. So that would A, uh, reduce the complexity of the PLC code, presumably, and then also reduce some of that, the processing requirements uh, for that PLC. And if you have a really intensive visualization, it's possible you could even you know downgrade your PLC, right? Yeah, it's it's a different way of looking at it and and, mm -hmm. and really sizing or configuring configuring systems. Right. You're able to really choose more appropriate hardware for the execution of the system. You don't have to have a very powerful controller mm -hmm. because you want a very dynamic HMI, right? And the other thing I, I, that I just thought of is not only do you have those benefits, but it's faster too, right? So if we're using events and actions, which is one of the, the features built into Matthew, uh, where maybe the traditional tr traditional way is, you know, push a button, communicate that back to the PLC, process on the PLC, communicate that back to the HMI to make some change. With the client-side processing and events and actions, if you push that button, you can uh, close that loop, so to say, on the HMI itself and then react very quickly and have a much, much faster user interface. Yeah, that's exactly right. The events and actions system is a very powerful feature of MapView. So the, the system is how you as a designer will create dynamic or reactive elements in your in your HMI. Um, so for example, you know, this could be as simple as a, uh, a desire to react on a button event. The button, for example, or a button would have a series of events that you could uh, react on, such as a, a mouse down or a click event. And with the events and action system, you can design a, a series of actions that then happen whenever that event is triggered. So can you give me an example of like an action that would happen with a button mouse down or a button click? Right. So the, the simplest one to think about would be a navigation event, right? It could say, okay, on a mouse click, you want to navigate to a certain area. Or on a, on a button click, for example, you could trigger a dialogue to appear on the screen or a message box. There are a vast number of events that can trigger a equally vast number of actions. Right. And that's independent for each widget, right? Independent for each widget, independent also for uh, the visualization as a client. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then I, I think just kind of going back to what I said before, the, the really nice benefit of having these the event, event handling system is that um, when you trigger these events on the client, uh, we can execute those actions on the client as well. So you get, you know, like you were saying, a, a dialog box popping up. That happens really fast, so it feels um, very uh, natural to the user. Exactly, exactly. The reaction times there will be very quick. So really, the you know the time that it takes from a, a button issuing a, an, a, an event, like let's say the click, to um, to an action executing is is extremely quick. Those quick reaction times really help create the impression of a dynamic HMI. You know, if you if we start counting what the round trip times, you know, to to 
communicate between uh, between the HMI to the PLC and then the PLC back to the HMI. Mm-hmm. Um, it adds up, especially as you increase the number the, the number of elements and the number right. of of those round trip back and forth to the PLC. And with Web HMI, by by shifting all the decision to the client, you have a nearly instantaneous reaction mm-hmm. and a much more responsive uh, and, and crisp experience. Yep. We talked about Matthew kind of in the context of a BNR controller because we said we needed to host the Matthew server somewhere, and presumably that's going to be on a BNR controller. Then communicating to the HMI. Can you talk about what it would take to use Matthew with a non-BNR controller for someone who's looking maybe to maintain? their existing machine code, um, and, and just looking to upgrade their user interface. So maybe they have some sort of uh, certifications that's expensive to change machine code, but upgrading the visualization uh, is something that's more feasible. No, absolutely. And this is this is really was one of the main, let's say, requirements as we um, as we developed this this technology. Was mm-hmm. We decided from the beginning, so, okay, our interface to the PLC is going to be an open standard. We're not going mm-hmm. to develop our own uh, proprietary connection to the PLC. Right. So it was very important for us to deliver a product that used an open standard, and that standard is OPC UA. What this means is that really we, that Matthew HMI can talk not only to a BNR PLC, but really any PLC that offers a, an OPC UA connection. The majority of new PLCs will have some sort of OPC UA option. And even if there's not an OPC option built into the controller? Is there a way? So for example, I know there, there's a lot of Alan Bradley uh, controllers out there that don't really have a, a, a OPC way connection built in. Is there a way to right. take that data still? Absolutely. So it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily have to be built in, but mm-hmm. uh, there are other services and platforms that provide um, OPC way drivers okay. for, for those controllers. Right. Okay, so it would be possible for me to have my Alan Bradley controller doing the main machine control, then I'm collecting uh, data presumably over Ethernet IP uh, that then gets hosted as OPC UA data, and then we're collecting from that directly? Uh, Essentially. Okay. Essentially, yes. Can you just talk about what are your favorite features of Matthew, something that that excites you, maybe the ones that you've worked on? I don't know. Yeah, I was thinking about that. I mean, I, I, I enjoy working with with Matthew quite a bit, um, I, I may be biased, but I I, uh, <laughs> I do enjoy it. Um, I guess I would say some of my favorite things about it. Um, I think that the what we call the the paper widget is is quite powerful. So it it allows uh, the user to to essentially create very cool SVG based animations. It can be very powerful to the user to to, to be able to have a, a custom animation of, of, of the machine, of the process, and that allows interaction with the user. So yeah, can you talk a little bit more about what an SVG is and then how that enables the paper widget to be as powerful as you're saying? Yes. Yes, SVG stands for scalable vector graphics. And the reason why it's so powerful is because it, of itself, it's again, it's it's based on the markup language like uh, HTML, and so you are able to basically craft graphics by you know the elements that you add to this to the SVG definition. Alongside of that, there are a lot of predefined transformations that can be done to the graphics. And so when you put all of those things together, then um, you're able to create very nice looking graphics and then animate or interact with those graphics. Another cool part of it is that you know the interaction, again, as I mentioned, is not just one way. You're not 
not only can you animate those graphics to achieve the desired uh, visual effect, but also the user can interact with it and provide data that is fed back into the visualization. With SVGs, the scalability, that's what the S stands for, right, is really important because it's built from that markup language, like you're saying. It's different from a normal image in that, um, you know, a normal image is an array of pixels, right? And so it doesn't necessarily scale very well. But with an SVD, it's, it's kind of like the instructions to build the image. And so you can kind of define uh, how big it's going to be. And then you have kind of this uh, infinite scalability, really good resolution at any scale because you're just telling it, you know, draw a circle with these, uh, you know, uh, ratios. You're not telling it, here's a bitmap of a circle and then scale that. Exactly, exactly. So it, it, in, in that respect, you know, images that are uh, done in SVG can be scaled freely without any distortion. Of course, there are other things that, that are very, very impressive too. You know, the, the ability to perform um, multi-touch gestures. For example, configure a multi-touch gesture that is like a swipe with two fingers, right? Mm-hmm. We can configure that to be, to trigger a page change. That allows, again, to incorporate some of those familiar UI concepts from, from our phones and our, and our tablets into the machine control. And really, uh, I, I do... I do think it's also powerful, really, the ability to, to serve up the right content at the right time. I think it's really crucial. So what we're talking about is, is that if there's a fault in the machine, not only alerting the operators to the fact that there is a fault in the machine, but you want to be able to provide just the right diagnostic information about the fault. Maybe it's loading up a video that shows how to um, fix the problem. Maybe it's uh, the ability to, to contact the service team for support right away from that HMI. I think one of my favorite ones, not that you asked, but uh, (laughs) I think one of my favorite ones is the metadata forwarding. So where we can take like in the newest version of MapView, based on the metadata that we're getting from the client, we can direct them to a specific visualization. So let's say, uh, you know, we detect that it's an iPad, we can send them the service page, for example, or if, you know, we detect that it's the machine HMI, we send it the machine page. So that kind of gets handled in the background. You've got a really elegant way to display different content to different users uh, or different devices. That's right. The metadata that MapView receives from the client includes things like the client's operating system, for example, if it's an iOS uh, client or Android or Windows or, or Linux, for example, but also things like client resolution and screen resolution. And that information really allows you to create a, a sort of an, an adaptive experience and creates sort of an adaptive design mm-hmm. where you, again, try to serve up the right content to the right user to the right situation. Those are your favorite features of Matthew. What's uh, next that everyone should be excited about? I'm, I'm really excited about, uh, about compound widgets. The compound widget framework is really gives you the ability, gives the user the ability to put together these standard widgets and configure them and essentially create their own library of widgets by combining the widgets and, and creating really the, the, the dynamic behavior within that widget. And uh, I'm really excited about that. I think it'll be really powerful for, the, for our users to be able to do that. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Daniel. I appreciate you uh, joining for this conversation. Really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it as well. Thank you very much for having me.
No problem. So in future episodes, we'll be diving into some exciting topics and common questions in automation. Got some more exciting episodes lined up, Servo motors, PCs, CNC, lots and lots more. Uh, more special guests, more special topics that you definitely want to keep an eye out for. So make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you enjoyed the podcast, just let us know by leaving a review and a comment in Apple Podcasts. Um, if you want to get in touch with me uh, or have an idea for the show, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn, leave a comment, send me a message, uh, or of course you can contact me by email at automationpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, wanted to give a quick shout out to the sponsor of the episode, BNR. Uh, in between episodes, of course, you can always keep up to date with the latest news on automation on the BNR website or the BNR YouTube channel. Definitely check that out. There's lots of good content there. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on This Is Automation.